You're listening to the Kingdom Project Podcast. These are discussions on biblical theology and interpretation. The emphasis is on context and grace. The goal is to promote biblical literacy by displacing and debunking most modern interpretations. The challenge is to engage in healthy conversation that may stretch, but sharpen iron. This is The Kingdom Project, and I'm your host, Marcus Hall. All right, we are in Ephesians 5. Remember, we just did the first two verses last week. Um, I wanted to try to get my goal this week was to go through 3 through 21, but that didn't happen. But we're going to try today to go through 3 through 14. That's a nice little uh, stopping area. So we're in the home stretch, though. So. Still, probably, you know, several weeks, but you start thinking about maybe what you want to go to after this, if you want to go through another book, or I was thinking about an overview of the whole Bible, um, or focus on the gospel, really what the gospel is, to be able to articulate that simply in a simple way and in a good way. A good, uh, I don't know, or a good, really know what the gospel is. <laughs> this is what I'm trying to say. Be thinking about that. Let me know if there's any options there. We can go through an overview. When I say go through the whole Bible, I mean an overview of the overarching themes. I will do a sermon that I have. It's called Cover to Cover. I will go through the whole Bible in one setting um, and within 35 minutes. Um, I can cover it all. <laughs> and then we could go through the patriarchs and the overarching theme from the beginning to the end and just hit the highlights so you are do know and familiar with the, the, the people and the historical settings and whatnot. So, <laughs> so you can decide. Think about that. Okay, so um, we, we've taken a look last week at how to imitate God and how that takes place because of our position in being made new, right? And it also makes us his beloved children, it said. So we are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So we too give ourselves up to the Father to walk in a committed, a devoted, selfless, consecrated love, always looking out for the highest good in all those around us. Okay? So... We're start at three. I'm just going to read through. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, which is greed, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There's a lot of stuff in there. Okay, there's one thing I may not have in my notes completely. I want to point out real fast when it says must not even be named among you. And he, he, he says that again in there. He's not saying you don't talk about these things. Of course, we don't gossip or slander, but he's saying this should not be taking place among you guys to where it is an issue where, you know, uh, you know, Mike's an adulterer. That should not be happening, happening. In, within the body here, okay? That's what he's saying, okay? So, um, verse 3, okay? It starts with the, the but. But! <laughs> uh, sexual immorality. Now, there's some few, a few things here which a lot of people don't address much anymore from the pulpit, okay? So, um, I'm not going to get crass or anything like that, but this word but is drawing a contrast with the command that he has given us to walk in love. Okay, so Paul is making it clear that this love that we are called into stands in a stark contrast, and it, it is the complete polar opposite of the list or the lust of the flesh and of the world. Okay, so I, I've mentioned before in Ephesus, okay, that and within this Greco Roman world, at that time in the first century, it was no, known for moral corruption. We talked about that temple of Artemis or Diane. Um, that was going on. So there's ritual prostitution taking place as part of worship in the temples, and it's actually uh, looked, looked upon as go a good thing. Okay? Their sexual pro promiscuity was commonplace. Uh, Nero, he's the Caesar. He's the emperor at this time in Rome. He, uh, he was bisexual. Uh, he married a young boy that he had castrated, actually. He was also sexually involved with his own mother. And then he tortured Christians as well sexually before he killed them. And his nickname, in case you were interested, is the Beast, um, which... Is talked about in Revelation, so that may get you will spinning there on that. Just on that side note, he is known as the Beast because he would take an animal hide, co cover himself up with it, and attack Christians sexually and torture them like that. This is commonplace here. Okay, we know our culture is a little crazy right now with the transgender stuff and the the, the LGBT and all those things. Um, it's an issue, um, but it's a far cry 
from what's taking place here. It's a far cry from what was taking place too, I think, in the Old Testament in Sodom and Gomorrah when you read that there's men pounding on the door saying, hey, there's a new guy with you. And he's talking about the angels. And you say, bring him out so we can have sex with him. That's how morally corrupt they are, right? We may be seeing history repeat itself, but we're still a ways away. So it's not anything new, though, is what I'm trying to say. So here and now, it's imperative for the church to be distinctly different, to be distinct from the immoral culture that was facing God's judgment. All right. And there's coming judgment there to them at this time, as well as for those who are alive today. And Paul uses the word saints again. We've covered this. It's common word for believers. It means holy thing, holy ones. It simply states that as a believer, you are sanctified. You are set apart as holy unto the Lord. And you are now to live as a saint. Now, Jesus said that immoral behavior comes from out of the heart. All right. This is internal first and foremost. The Pharisees were always concerned with the external. Jesus confronts the internal, right? This is what Paul is coming from here too. Uh, Paul uses these six terms to refer to these sins that we should not be a parta uh, partakers of and do not, not practice. It's not proper, he says. So we have sexual immorality, impurity, Greed or covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. Okay, so sexual immorality. The Greek is pornea. It's where we get our word pornography from. Now, I want to make a side note, though. That, that does not mean that the, the Greek here is just referring to visual portrayals of sexual act activity. And my point in saying that is we never read back into the Bible the meaning of our modern English words. Rather, we need to allow the Bible to define its terminology in its own way within its own context. Okay? So this word, pornea, includes premarital sex, extramarital sex, incest, homosexuality, and bestiality. And then we should all know, it should be common, that any sex outside of the commitment of marriage is not rooted in love, it's lust. Outside of marriage, sex devolves into using the other person for our own gratification. And I would also mention that this can happen within marriage as well to those who do not have a proper understanding of what it is for two to come together and be one. Okay? Impurity means dirty. It means impure. It was used to refer to pus around an infected wound, um, which is nasty. Uh, when, when, when speaking of morals, it refers to whatever contaminates others. It's repulsive and disgusting. Paul used this in chapter 4 when he was referring to ungodly behavior of the Gentiles who had given themselves over to sensuality. And then we have covetous or covetousness, and it's mentioned in chapter 4 as well in 19. It's right next to sexual sins here. And in, in, in 5, Paul equates it with idolatry. And that's because no matter the, the, the object, no matter the sin, 
The greedy man always has a lust for more. Um, it, it's, it's motivated by a selfish pleasure. It's motiva- motivated with a self-centeredness. Um, it, it becomes idolatry because it's apart from God. Because it seeks to find pleasure in something other than God. So that's always the equation that you deal with here. Um, self seeks for self desires. Self seeks for self. Uh, that puts it higher than God. So no matter the sin, idolatry gets thrown in there as well. You're always seeking, like that becomes your God. That becomes the object of your pleasure or of your faith. So I'm going to lump the next three together. Okay, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. First, we have indecency and obscenity. Or a shameful thing. Foolish talk or speech is where we get our word moron from. <laughs> from the, the, the root. And then in the Bible, we have a fool. And a, a fool is someone who is morally deficient, though, because he ignores God's word. Here, Paul is speaking to, uh, to speech that disregards or makes light of God's moral commandments. The crude joking literally means to turn easily, which is was interesting. Um, we would know what this is, but this makes it even more uh, clear of what it is. It's someone who can actually make a quick comeback using clever words with a double meaning. Uh, so in other words, it's someone who can actually turn something into a j- dirty joke without no effort is what that, that's really referring to. Someone that's really quick. You ever been around those people that can always just slide that perverse comment in? That's exactly what that meaning to uh, is meaning or referring to. So he's not condemning joking and, and laughing and stuff here. He's talking about the rudeness and the crudeness of it, and it really shows. It really shows where the heart, the intent of the heart, and where the person's mind, the spirit of that mind is. If somebody is that fast on their feet to be able to turn something that around so fast okay so in summary here god's god's standard must be our standard as saints okay so sexual purity is a frequent theme throughout the bible but it is in paul's letters um, as well and he mentions purity or he warns about this immorality 22 times and those 22 times are all addressed to professing Christians who are in the church. So I, it, it, would, it would be smart to say that God intended for us to be reminded of and to always be on guard against sexual temptation. Okay. <clears throat> and, and what's interesting here is Paul says the alternative to these things, I would say is what he's getting at, is... Um, when he says, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. He says to give thanks. So in contrast, thanksgiving is the positive way to speak. It counteracts greed. The way to avoid coveting others and their possessions is to con- concentrate with thanks upon the good things that the Lord has given to us. To be thankful, we have to be in submission to God over every detail of our lives. And if we remember 
the serpent tempted Eve, right, um, <clears throat> by getting her to doubt God's goodness. And that's what I'm getting at there. And, and, and then to grumble and complain about our lives is saying that we know what's better for us than God does as well. So the same ploy can be used to tempt us to fulfill sexual desires or just the, the desires of the flesh in greed and be in disobedience to God. But think it's safe to say that in all those things, then you are questioning God's goodness. Because you're declaring, um, rebelling against those, those things. Now, I may not be as on point with the rest of the, the, the text here. It, it kind of, they, they all sort of start to tie together. And he sort of, we'll see there's a parenthesis in verse 9. And so that takes 10 and ties it with 8 and it sort of goes all over so I just started getting a little crazy I think in my notes maybe maybe not I, <laughs> you can let me know afterwards all right but but still here Paul states that the immoral and greedy will not be in God's kingdom but incur his wrath all right and that makes sense obviously because it wouldn't be heaven if they did inherit it as well right Genuine believers may fall into these sins. Okay? However, no genuine, in my opinion, no genuine believer will continue in such sins. The true professing Christian will not and cannot lead an unrepentant, sinful life after conversion to Christ, all right? 1 John 3, it says the one who practices righteousness is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. We know we'll sin. These are possibilities. But someone who can continues, this is part of our conversation this morning with Olivia, that's why we relate. One who willfully and continually walks in habitual sin starts to sear their conscience of it. They're not convicted of it. One who does something, one of these things that are mentioned here too, is like, like it says he will not inherit the kingdom of God because something is apparently wrong. Maybe they weren't saved. And we're going to see that in a minute. But someone who has truly been renewed, regenerated, born again, will not continue in that sin. Yes, we will sin, but we will be fast to change that because we don't want to be in that. We don't want to have that to continue in our lives. We will, it, we want to walk away from it, okay? So in verse six is interesting because he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. <clears throat> and then he says, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It's interesting to me, okay? So Paul was aware of other teachers. We know this in other letters. They were teaching to sin more, so grace would abound more. Uh, and that's historically true. But this phrase, sons of disobedience, is here. It occurs three times in the New Testament. Usually it's referencing unbelievers. But here I believe it's twofold. There's two groups of people here. There's unbelievers and there is actually false converts. There are people who think they're saved and they're not. That's a deep hole, I understand. I don't want to get too far in that. But um, sons of 
sons of disobedience could refer to the lives that thought they had repented because they had believed in empty words from these teachers um, here, but whose lives were still characterized by disobedience, by sin. They're false converts. They're living in this sin, habitual sin and disobedience to God's moral standards. And it's evident that they are truly not born again. And unless they repent, they face God's wrath here. They are sons of disobedience. So it's interesting to me that he links these, these, these selfish and jealous terms together with empty words. Um, he also, when you're talking about lust and uh, pervert thing, perversion, he's connecting here. It's just so slight, but I, think, I believe he's referring to false teachers and the perversion and the lust to go after other things that aren't the truth. Um, it seems, seems to be about false teachers teaching for selfish gain and how they pervert and twist God's words to scratch its ears and gratify the desires of people's flesh along with theirs as well. So I, I don't know how you guys feel about that, but I think... <laughs> I feel like that's what is, is going on there. And it, it really grabbed my attention. All right. We can do that. It happens. There's many people that do that. All right. So Paul, Paul then answers how we are to relate to a morally dark world as children of light with guiding principles. And by understanding them, it will help us to respond to situations that can and will occur around us. But there's two extremes. Okay, some some try to relate to the lost in such a way that there ends up being no distinction whatsoever between them and the world, uh, the worldly people. But the other extreme is others who overemphasize the need to be so separate from the world that they end up withdrawing themselves completely from it and those who are part of it. So there's like they're not doing anything. <clears throat> but Paul clearly here is not commanding us to avoid all contact with the world, but to avoid joining with them in their sin. And he states that as children of light, that we have fruit of the light. It's similar to the fruit of the Spirit. I believe it, it is. I believe the fruit of the Spirit is fruit of the light. So Scripture, we know, gives general principles of life, um, but for followers of Christ, we use wisdom to discern how to apply those principles to the concrete issues of our lives. And it, it could be defined as uh, the skill of godly living, maybe, or uh, uh, spiritual uh, wisdom, where we, we thoughtfully discern, apply, and practice in order to live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. He doesn't say like, here is what is pleasing to the Lord uh, when he mentions this. He says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. It's interesting. I know we're not all the way there yet, but it, it, it comes in here. <laughs> so we walk as children of light in this world, exposing the deeds of darkness. Light and darkness is the theme in Scripture. Darkness is sin. It's Satan's influence. The sinful deeds of those who reject God. This is darkness. All right. Light is the picture of the knowledge of the truth that comes from God. 
when he shines into our lives. And when we are called to walk in that light, just as he himself is in the light, living with every area of our lives exposed to God because of that light. So, so notice in, in, in 7, yeah, Paul doesn't say we were darkness. He says we used to be darkness. It's an eight. For at one time you were darkness. We used to be darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. This, this implies, again, throughout this letter, this again implies a profound change in life due to the new birth, to being born again. We were spiritually blind. We lived entirely for us, to our own pleasures. Now God has saved us. He's opened our eyes for our understanding, seeing our true condition as sinners and also the sufficiency of Jesus and his death to cover our sin. Light brings a revelation, uh, a new understanding of God's word, a new desire to know God and his truth more. And now we hate sin that we formerly belong to and we desire to be like our Savior. We now walk in light and are no longer darkness. God has made us light in the Lord. And as children of light, we will be good. <laughs> Obviously, right? Because goodness is an attribute of God. So we walk every day in dependence of the Holy Spirit. Children of light also implies that we will be righteous and people of truth who discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This is confront or conformity to God's righteous standards. The truth stands in contrast to darkness. The life of unbelievers who are, are deceived, right? We're the opposite. So being made new in righteousness and holiness of the truth, we speak truth in love. Remember that part we've gone over. So we see in verse 9 is this parenthesis here. So verse 10 goes back to verse 8 and it summarizes what it means to walk as children of light. That we, we prove by our experience what is pleasing to the Lord. Try to discern translates the singular Greek verb, which is prove. So as we are renewed and transformed through the word, we prove in our experience, in the way we walk out what pleases God. It's not through our feelings and not our emotions. It's not that kind of experience, but by learning through growing to understand his word. And in doing so, it lends itself to be able to expose the deeds of darkness. So by our lives and our words, we expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness for what they are, which is disgraceful sin in God's presence. John 3, 20 and 21 says that Jesus said, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So again, if there is no difference 
in our thoughts, our actions, our reactions, in any behavior from those who are, are unbelievers then who do not know Jesus, then we don't have a message to give them. We're, we're just like, you know, we're just like them. We have nothing to offer. And of course we think it's us that have something to offer. It's not. But we stand as, as a, a, a testimony, right? Our, we want our lives to reflect good. Jesus was a friend of sinners. We know that. But he wasn't just hanging out with them to pass the time and to have a good time. Right? He came, he came to seek and save the lost. He didn't come to, to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And he, 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 he was Jesus. I know. He maintained holiness. And, but he was able to put sinners at ease so that they heard his message. So exposed can be many things. It can mean to, to reprove or convince through conversation. But while at the same time taking great care not to gossip or slander. Instead, we should show by our lives and our wise interactions that the works of darkness are not being ignored among us. Okay? <clears throat> okay. I need a drink. Here I go. So I'm going to, you know, we're, we, we will close with 14. It's still got a couple. Okay. And he says, therefore, it says, what, what, what is it that says? It's not a quotation of any of the Old Testament passages, but it's, mo- it's most likely <clears throat> is an actually an early Christian hymn that's based on Isaiah 60, verse 1. <clears throat> and that says, arise. <coughs> We're all coughing now. <laughs> Isaiah 61 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Now, Paul cites it as an example of the directives that he has given. It's a picture of the exposure of an unbeliever to the light with a view of their salvation, I believe. They were sleeping. They were dead, just as we were. God called us to awake and arise. The result is Christ's light shining upon us. It's an interesting statement because... You heard Isaiah 60, so here it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It sounds like a command to me. I know most of you aren't as knowledgeable about history as I am. And Dad and I were having this conversation earlier. Most of us are Arminian in our belief. Um, there's Calvinists and there's Arminian. We're Arminian. Um, if we believe, you believe we have free will. Most of us. That okay. There was two. The Reformation happened. Protestant movement began 500 years ago. Over here, Calvinists, completely depraved. No matter how good and nice a person you are, you don't know the Lord. You're as evil as Satan himself, right? Oh, you don't make a decision. 
Um, you don't do anything because you're wicked, dirty, wretched. Some of that's true. <laughs> We're sinners, right? Um, but Arminius came and said, no, you have free will, all these things, these happen. So we're, we come from the Arminian point of view. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It sounds like a command. It begs the question to me, who's waking the sleeper? Who wakes the sleeper? God or the sleeper? So it leads to the question, who saves who? God or the sinner? What a twist. <laughs> are those who, de- who are dead able to, in their strength, to arise from the dead? Or is it God who imparts the power to respond and obey just as Lazarus did when Jesus called out, Lazarus, come forth. If everything that we are to do is to give glory to God, right? Then, and part of my testimony isn't when I decided to follow Jesus or when I came to God, because I'm still taking credit for part of my salvation. I made a decision. I don't think I did necessarily. How does that work? There's still a mystery there, right? You can disagree with me on here. I believe that's still that supernatural mystery that's going on. I'm not saying that some people are saved or elect, predestined to be saved and not to be saved. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying within the work of the Holy Spirit that comes because that spirit's been poured out at Pentecost on all flesh. He's not in all of us, but he's been poured out. He tries to draw, he's trying to put people in our lives, to hear the gospel, to know the truth, to see the creation of God all around us because we are without no excuse. He wants to draw us in. Conviction hits. We may not respond. Again, see, or many... Do we respond? What happens? Faith is a gift from God, right? It says that. God even gives us the faith. The conviction happens. It takes place. Something's activated. We wake up. So who wakes who? (laughs) It's just one of those things. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Who wakes who? Who saves who? Who made Light not only exposes sin, but it also drives away darkness. And it said, you were darkness. It doesn't matter if we have the concrete answers to those questions that I just asked, okay? <laughs> I believe it's good to leave mystery in your theology, okay? We're not going to know it all. There's things that the supernatural, that's a supernatural work when we become saved. Our salvation is supernatural work. The Holy Spirit does it. I can't take credit for it though. I don't want to. Instead though, if we don't have those answers, it doesn't matter. Instead, as children of light, we discern what pleases God 
and expose the darkness, which in turn commands and calls out to sinners to awake and rise, knowing the Father will impart the power and strength to obey, resulting in them becoming children of light as well, with Christ shining on them. We do this. I do this on Sunday. I don't know how you guys do it. You guys do it though. You guys have your version of this. We do this knowing that the Holy Spirit will do it. I, I can't. We, we want to say, hey, we'll make 2019 resolution. Everybody in here, we're going to lead one person to Christ next year. Sounds good. Sounds exciting, right? You guys aren't going to lead anybody to Christ because I'm not either. We don't lead people to Christ. That's what I'm getting to. Who, does the, who, who leads them to Christ? The gospel does. It's Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit. We lay groundwork, yes. We talk, we preach, we teach. We are examples. But that's the point. I believe that's what's going on here. It's so interesting to me. Who, who wakes who? <laughs> right? Something to think about. Is there any questions, comments, complaints, <laughs> disagreements? Someone has to disagree with me on that. <laughs> All right. Cool. All right. Everyone good? All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and give you glory. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how it speaks to us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for illuminating it to us as we try to find out what you meant when you inspired the writers to write these. But 2,000 years later, we're still gathering for your, your word. We're still gathering to hear from you. We're still gathering to worship you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this day. We thank you, Jesus, for life. We thank you for bringing us into new life, into bringing us into your light. And we give you praise. We give you all glory. We just ask to be with all who are here today and all who are not. In Jesus' name, amen.